All right, it's time for our prayer and share session. But before we do that, uh, Jessica and Dev and Dick are back. And uh, they're here together with the team. So I've asked Devin, I don't know if you want to bring Jess with you or not, but, but um, uh, Joanne's pushing you, so you got no choice um, to come and explain a little bit of what you guys have been up to for the last while and uh, what you're doing now. So there you are. Yeah, it's great to be back in the area again in uh, the Torch Trail, Nipwin area. Um, for those of you who don't know us, we're... Devin and I'm Devin and Jessica Dick, and uh, we worked at Torch Trail Bible Camp for about six years, and uh, we lived there for a handful of years. And uh, God called us to uh, a different uh, kind of mission within CSSM still. CSSM uh, has started up a new discipleship program called Encounter, and this is its first year that uh, it started up, and me and Jess, we started up with them in April here. And for those of you who don't know a little bit about Encounter, um, what it is, it's a one-year discipleship school that's mobile. So the cool thing about CSSM, or I guess it's called One Hope Canada now, is they have about 40-some 40, 40 uh, Bible camps from coast to coast. So there's lots of, lots of uh, mission fields that CSSM has, and they have lots of sites. So when uh, Barry, uh, our other staff member, and uh, the national director, Bill, were, were discussing it, they were talking about maybe doing a, a, a like a keep it at one spot and then kind of have a Bible school out of that one spot, but then they thought, if we have all these camps across Canada, then our mission is completely different in Quebec than it is in Saskatchewan as it is in BC as it is in Alberta. So we thought, why not go mobile? So what we do, if any of you guys saw our, our big bus that pulled up here today, uh, our thing is our, we, we are mobile. And so what we did in September here, we started off in New Brunswick at uh, Hampton Bible Camp, and we spent about a month in each province at each camp. And we, we travel to about eight camps in this uh, school year. What we do at each camp is uh, we take module-type classes with our students. And so we take about week-long classes, and we do about, we do about a month. So it's between four, three and four weeks that we spend there. And we do classes, and then we do uh, mission projects with the camp. And then we try to get into the community and do some ministries as well. So we're just over our halfway point here. We just finished up in, in Manitoba at Valley Bible Camp. We rolled into Torch Trail last night. So... Uh, we're pretty pumped to be in Saskatchewan. Jessica is from Saskatchewan, and I've been living in Saskatchewan the last handful of years, so it's, we're, we're pretty, pretty pumped to be here, and uh, we're excited to be in this area as well. So we're at Torch Trail for the next three weeks. We'll be taking classes, and if you see our bus rolling around, nip one here and uh, wave. We've got our, our students in there as well. So, yeah, we've got about 12 students, and they range from seven different provinces right across Canada. So um, if you guys want to get to know them, they're the, probably the 12 that are kind of new faces in the area. So actually, I'll get our, our students to stand up. That would be a great thing as well. All right. Wow, look at them. So, yeah. So thank you. Yeah, so if you guys could be praying for us as we're here, uh, the three topics that we're going through this, this month is um, Christ's profile as a, as a disciple, um, the Holy Spirit, and, and apologetics. So those are three, three topics that we're really pumped about. And uh, just pray that the Lord just does his work in, in the hearts of the, us staff and the students as well. And uh, you guys can just keep, be keeping us in, our, in your prayers as well as we travel across Canada. Because we're, after this month, we move on to Alberta, then, and we end off in BC at, on Pender Island, just on the, on the west coast there. So, uh, yeah, we would appreciate you guys' prayers. And, uh, yeah, just thanks for letting us come out here. So The name again, Devin? Uh, Encounter School of Discipleship, sorry. Okay. So, yeah, thank you.
If you have your Bibles with me, uh, I know that we're supposed to have communion first, and, and we're not going to because as I, as I worked on this, I thought, you know what, I need to change this. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, and um, we'll go there and work on, on what God has impressed upon me this, these last days. So we are, we are truly coming into the 21st century, Kathy and I. Um, a little while ago, um, we had a, a stereo system that kind of bit the dust and it wouldn't play CDs anymore. So I said to Kathy, well, we can replace that or we can do something different. And so what we did was we bought uh, a critter called a sound dock, which lets us uh, connect wirelessly to our iPads and to the computer. And um, now we can, we're hooked up to XM radio and we have wonderful sound in our house and, uh, and it's all done from one of these things and, uh, and you know we can just buy the stuff on iTunes, no longer have to buy an entire CD, you can buy one song at a time and, uh, and so that's all cool and then um, we got Apple TV so now if I have pictures on my iPad I can put them on the, on the TV screen you know and blow them up real big. And so that part, we've come into the 21st century, so this is my first time of preaching with an iPad. I don't know if this is going to work or not, and, and if it hiccups on me, I'm hooped, because I don't have printed copy. I stepped out in faith. Power goes out. No, this, will still, this is on battery. Okay, we're good. All right, um, let, let's go to Ruth, and I want to read... From chapter 3, uh, you know some of the story. Uh, Ruth, and, or Naomi rather, her husband, her sons moved across the river to a foreign country because there was famine in the land. Uh, all the men died. Uh, Ruth was, or Naomi rather, was left with her two daughters-in-law. And, and one of those daughters uh, came back with her, Ruth, and the other one stayed behind. And when they came back to Bethlehem, Naomi said, uh, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And she was not a happy camper. And, and when they came back, they probably left as people of standing. When they came back, they had nothing. And so Ruth went to work gleaning in the fields, which meant that she walked behind those who were doing the harvesting or walked behind the combine and picked up the grain that blew out the back end. That's basically what gleaning was. It was something that was reserved for the absolute dejected and poorest in the land. And they had gone from a life of plenty to a life of extreme poverty. So, chapter 3, and, and we're just going to read for a, a little bit there. Read with me. Uh, one day Naomi, verse 1 there, One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. A little manipulative, eh? Maybe. When, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. 
I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lay down, lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. And that's as far as we'll go today. Some time ago, Kathy and I went out for a meal in one of our local restaurants, and as we were enjoying the meal, the server came over to our table and said, by the way, um, you don't need to worry about paying. Your bill has been covered. And, and we said, really? <laughs> you know? And she said, yeah, those people at this other table over there have covered your bill for you. They have paid, and they've taken care of absolutely everything. And, and so we waved at them, and, and they just said, enjoy your meal. It was a thoughtful gesture, and Kathy and I were most appreciative. And the people uh, who paid for us, they hadn't invited us. They didn't say, like, we'll take you guys out for a meal. Uh, we were not with them. Uh, and while we knew who they were, they were not part of our usual circle of friends. And this was something they just did. It was pure grace. It was undeserved favor on, on our part. And they paid a debt they did not owe. We could have paid, but they chose to pay our debt. And the fact that we still remember, you still remember that, don't you? Yeah, you do. Okay, I'm... And the fact that Kathy and I still remember that years later proves that it made a lasting impression on us. Similarly, you and I owe a debt. The trouble is that we cannot pay that debt. That debt is called sin. But Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. It wasn't his responsibility to pay it, but he paid the penalty for our sins. That means our debt has been covered. And we're going to see that in a graphic form here in just a little bit when we partake of communion. But I want to take us a little deeper into the story. You see, the privilege of redemption, of having our debt covered, the privilege of having our debt paid, and redemption means to pay for something. When I redeem something, I pay for it. And, and the privilege of having redemption or having the privilege of redemption imposes upon us an obligation. And that obligation is, is that we owe something back. Now, what happened in Israel? Well, we talked a little bit about the story. Ruth and Naomi are back in Bethlehem without resources. Ruth decided to go and do what you would do if you were poor and destitute. She said, let me go gleaning in a field. And in chapter 2, uh, and verse 3, we read these words, As it turned out, she found herself working in a field to, belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of her father-in-law. It just so happened. And we ask the question, where is God when life hurt? Where is God when, 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 when it all comes undone and, and we feel like we're totally alone and without resources in the world? And the answer to that question, God is just there. He's always there. He's never far away from us. He's just there. But sometimes he brings us into circumstances that we cannot handle to teach us our dependence on him. 
The future looked bleak, but Naomi realized that Boaz had a special position, and I wonder if her outlook on life, she was the one who said, call me bitter from now on, and I wonder if her outlook on life began to change a little bit when she found out that God had put Ruth in Boaz's field because she said, this guy is one of, he belongs to our clan, and he is one of our kinsmen. He is one of the people that that has a degree of responsibility for us. And, and I'm thinking her story and her attitude began to change. Ruth and Naomi had a desperate need. And so do you and I. Sometimes we don't realize it because we're, we're relatively healthy, we're relatively affluent, we're all clothed, we're all fed, we all have homes to live in, the bills are paid for the most part, but the reality is that you and I have a desperate need. Let me lay it out for you a little bit. You know the verses, Romans 3.23, which says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in desperate need. There is none of us, there are none of us that can stand on our own. The reality of life is that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, says the wages of sin is death. That's our destiny without Jesus Christ. The reality of our present life is that for those of us who are still there, we live in the slavery of sin. Romans 6 verse 16 says, You are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the reality is that we are helpless to do anything about it ourselves. Isaiah 64, 6 says, that all, or yes, 64, 6, that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rag. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away, and we're helpless to do anything about our own particular situation. Titus 3, 5 tells us that he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we were in desperate straits, much like Ruth and Naomi were in desperate straits in Bethlehem all those years ago. People are in desperate straits spiritually. The trouble is that many of us don't really realize it. But God made a provision, had made a provision years before. When God established the laws in Israel, he said, I am going to put someone in place um, to look after you, and that someone is called a kinsman redeemer, or just a kinsman for short. But the days in Israel, there were no things like we are used to. There, was no social, there were no social resources. There was a lack of government support for individual people, and the reality was when you were poor, you were poor. When you were destitute, you were destitute, and sometimes you had to sell yourselves into slavery in order to survive. You couldn't just declare bankruptcy and say, oh, well, and start all over again. You couldn't go to the government office and ask for assistance. You couldn't. There were a lot of things you couldn't do. And when it came to land ownership, those of you that own houses or land or, or whatever, you have title to your place. 
And back in the days of Israel, there was no such thing as title. The land was looked upon more as a lease. You had it, it was part of your family, and if you bought a piece of land, you only bought it until uh, there, there was a cycle that went every 50 years, and every 50 years, the land went back to its, its, the, the people it had been given to in the first place. If I bought a piece of land from you, all I bought from you was the number of crop years that were left. How many, ever many years were in that cycle? If there were 47 years left in that cycle, I would buy 47 crop years from you, but at the end of those 47 years, that land would revert back to the family that it had belonged to in the first place. And so God provided someone in the law called a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer was a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble. The kinsman redeemer had the privilege or the responsibility, whichever way it happened to become. He had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble or who was in danger or in need of vindication, and I'm going to explain that. There were certain qualifications. Number one, he had to be a close relative, and he had to have, the, secondly, he had to have the means or the resources to be able to act as a kinsman redeemer. He had to, if, if I wanted to sell my land to my kinsman redeemer, he had to have the resources to be able to pay for that. Otherwise, he, or she, he couldn't do his job. And the expectations of a kinsman redeemer was that he would repurchase land that was sold in a time of need. He was also responsible to free an Israelite who had enslaved himself to another Israelite because of poverty or bad financial decisions or whatever. And the third responsibility of a kinsman redeemer was to be the avenger of blood. And how that worked was this. Let's say I murdered someone. And I would go and, and, and I could go and flee to a city of refuge. There were six of them, three on either side of the Jordan River. And as I was there, my case would be investigated. And if it was found that I had accidentally and without forethought or malice killed someone, like I had been engaged in manslaughter, there would be a certain penalty. But if I had engaged in premeditated murder, then the avenger's, respons avenger's responsibility would be to execute me, not in a fit of vengeance, not in a fit of, uh, of, of feuding, but it was a judicial execution that was sanctioned by the legal bodies in Israel. And so God put this, this safety net in place and this safety net had the name of a kinsman redeemer. If I was destitute, I would go to my kinsman redeemer and say, hey, you have the privilege but also the responsibility of bailing me out here. And we have a kinsman redeemer. The reality is that we are helpless to act on our own. And yet, the Bible tells us in the passage we read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
The Bible tells us, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And in order for Jesus to function as our kinsman redeemer, he has to meet the qualifications, and he does. A kinsman redeemer had to be a near relative. In other words, Jesus needed to be fully human. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And we don't have to be ashamed to call Jesus our big brother because he calls me his little brother and his little sister for those of you ladies. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. And he had to have the means. We saw that in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. We weren't redeemed with cheap stuff like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the expectations of our kinsman redeemer are that he will redeem us, that he will bail us out, that he will cover the debt that you and I can't cover. But it places upon us an obligation. You see, Ruth went to Boaz. The Bible says that she went to him at night. Now, some people try and say that there's a degree of immorality involved, but there wasn't. And she went to him at night and lay down at his feet. And then when he wakes up and he says, who's there? She says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. What is she saying? She's asking that he would cover the debt that she was not able to pay. And if you have a Bible, let me take you a little further into the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezekiel chapter eight or 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 is the story. God, God does an allegory. An allegory is, is a story with a, an entirely different meaning. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, God likens Israel to, to uh, a baby that was left in the ditch, kicking in its blood. And he says, I rescued you. I rescued you, and you did all this stuff for me, and then, then you turned to prostitution, and you turned against me. And then that's basically what the entire chapter is about. But look at verse 8. Let's start at verse 6. Then I passed by, and I saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you, 
and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. And when Ruth asked Boaz to spread the corner or the wing of his garment over there, she was asking him to enter into a covenant relationship, and that covenant relationship wound up including marriage. And we're going to go there on another day. But she recognized that she was entering an obligation. When she asked Boaz to cover her, when she asked Boaz to, to extend or, or to put the corner of his mantle over her, she's saying, I'm asking you to enter into a covenant relationship to look after me since you are a kinsman redeemer. You are the one who is qualified to do this. Now the story is that there was someone who was more qualified than Boaz was, and again, we'll get to that at another time. But she said, you have the position. You meet all the qualifications to become my kinsman redeemer. Would you enter into a covenant relationship with me and become my kinsman redeemer? And I will place myself under obligation to you because a covenant is generally two-sided. God says to Israel uh, on that day, uh, God says, I entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Not in the sense of ownership. Kathy is my wife, not in the sense that I own her. I'm her husband. Not in the sense that she owns me, but we are in a covenant relationship together, and that gives us both privileges and responsibilities to each other. And so often we ask Jesus to be our kinsman redeemer. We ask for the privileges. We want to be covered. We want to have our debt paid without realizing that it places upon us an obligation as well. There's another side to that coin. There's another side to that covenant. And when we avail ourselves of the offer of redemption, we willingly and knowingly place ourselves under obligation. I didn't really realize that, and I, I alluded to it last week. But one time in, in, in early in our marriage, Kathy and I, I was involved in, in, in flying, and Kathy and I went to a, a, a fly-in where a bunch of pilots gathered at a place called 108 Mile in British Columbia. And the man who was our speaker was a man by the name of Vern Borthwick, and Alan, you'll probably recognize that name, but Vern and his wife had spent most of their lives serving with the Jungle, and aviation, jungle aviation and Radio Service, which was it's the aviation arm of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And, and we had a wonderful time. I got a flying lesson from Rolf that I will never forget. And, and, and Rolf talked to us about flying in airplanes, but one of the things that he invited, they invited Kathy and me over to their, to their place where they were staying, and they sat down and had coffee with us, and one of the things they said to us, and it was something we hadn't realized before, we probably heard it, but we probably heard it that time uh, where it made an impact. And the statement was this, if Jesus paid the price for you, and if you were willing to pay, to let him pay that price for you, then you owe your life to Jesus. 
Now, I can never repay him. I owed a debt I could not pay. Um, he paid a debt he did not owe. And I can never repay him for that, but it places me under obligation. It places me under his direction. It places me under his lordship. It puts me on the other side of that covenant. If I ask him to spread, to cover me, to, to do this job of a kinsman redeemer where he bails me out of the situation that I'm in, I am now obligated to him. What does that mean? It means that I can no longer make my own decisions. It means that I no longer live for myself. And for us, it meant that ultimately we wound up going to Bible school. I had my career all chosen and picked out, and that changed. And God ultimately brought us to Nippon. But, you know, I, I spent... Friday afternoon, I, 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 for some reason or another, I, I go on these nostalgia trips. None of you ever do that, do you? You know, where you go back to, you know, thinking about your, you know, younger years and all the rest of that. And, but I went on this nostalgia trip, and I found the newspaper of the town that I grew up in, and I read all the obituaries. I didn't read all of them. There's a lot of them I just kind of flipped through, but there was over a thousand of them, dated from 19, no, from 2000 and. Three, I think, to 2014. But I, I, I flipped through all these obituaries and many of the names I recognized. And many of them were parents of people with whom I'd gone to school, but many of them were people with whom I'd gone to school. And some of them were Christians, but most of them were not. And some of those obituaries talked about God and Jesus, but many of them didn't. Guys, people my age died. Cancer, Alzheimer's, heart attack, I think, passed away suddenly. But you know what struck me? When I read all those obituaries, most of them involved one or two paragraphs. And if all that's left at the end of my life is one or two paragraphs, you know, he was a good man, he liked to laugh, and, and he did carpentry projects and, and liked to help other people. I thought, how sad a summary of life is that? If that's all I have to show for my life is just one or two paragraphs of, you know, he liked to laugh, he liked fishing, and he liked this. I thought, I, I don't want to go there. You know, and, and, and actually, I'd like to have my funeral before I die because I want to hear all the nice things you're going to say about me. But, but maybe I'll do a video. You know, if you're watching this, I'm dead. But... Um, you know, I'm hoping that when I get to the end of my life, and I don't care if you only write a paragraph or two about me, but I hope that when I get to the end of my life, my Lord's going to say, yeah, you did something with what I invested in you. 
Say, I, I paid the price for you. I, I covered your debt. I, I paid for it all. Now, what have you done with it? What have you done with it? Have you, have you gone fishing and had a good time and, 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 and done all these, all these other things and, and, and had a big belly laugh and, and all the rest of that? Or have you done something with what I have invested in you? You see, when we enter into a covenant relationship, we enter into not only the privileges, but also into the obligations. And when the time comes to write our obituary, will it be all about us? Or will it be about Him? And how you and I were able to show Him to those close to us and to our community. Now, if I had to go back and do it over again, I'd do it differently. And so would you, probably. But you know, we still have days left here. And every day that's here, every day that God gives us, you and I can invest in eternity. We can do something with what Jesus invested in us to invest in the kingdom of God, whether it's whether it's a word, whether it's a cup of coffee, whether it's a donation, whether it's whatever all else, I just don't want my obituary to say he was a nice guy. Well, I wanted to say that, but... <laughs> and you can call it what you like. You can call it obligation. You can call it discipleship. You can call it service. You can call it ministry. You can call it Christ-likeness. You can give it many different names. But there's one name you can't give it, and that is optional. And that's where I want to leave it. And we are going to have communion. It reminds us of the price that was paid for you and me and the obligation that we enter into when we accept the fact that a price was paid for us. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt he could not pay. I could not pay. But Jesus paid it for me, and I owe my life to him. Those of you who are serving communion, would you please come and join me at the front of the church here? Let's just have a word of prayer together. Father, we talked about the qualifications of our kinsman redeemer and the fact that he had to be a near relative. We talked about Jesus' humanity and the bread that we were about to partake of represents his body. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the efficiency of your gift, your gift of your body to become one of us so that you could die on our behalf. In your precious name we pray. Amen.